So starting with Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3. Praise the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. For He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for Himself, according to His favor and will, to the praises of His glorious grace that He favored us with us in the Beloved. We have redemption in Him through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure that He had planned in Him for the administration of the days of fulfillment, to bring everything together in the Messiah, both things in heaven and things on earth in Him. We have also received an inheritance in Him, predestined according to the purpose of the One who works out everything in agreement with the decision of His will, so that we who are already put our hope in the Messiah might bring Him praise to His glory. When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed in Him, you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He is the down payment for our inheritance, for the redemption of the possession to praise through the praises of His glory. And now turning over to Second Corinthians 5, verse 14. For Christ's love compels us, since we have reached this conclusion, if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, so those that who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. Thanks, Michael. <clears throat> a few people have asked me about our one-off kind of giving series. You know, if it's a one-off, why are we talking about it every week? Um, the aim is that we, we put forward four different ways that we can give. We give you an opportunity to think through all of them. And then on the, on the fourth week, we'll give you kind of a slip, and then we'll have another week for you to think through and prayerfully consider the way, ways you'd like to be able to support uh, each of these different projects. Uh, so the last week will be the 23rd of November, um, in terms of that's when you'll get that opportunity uh, coming up. So just want to let people know that, just in case it wasn't clear. Sorry about that. Why don't we pray now, as we've heard God's Word read, uh, that we would see what God has shown us in Scripture. Let's, let's pray together. Lord God, this morning, as we've heard... You speak in your word. Uh, we ask that we would see this world from your viewpoint. That we'd understand ourselves and everything that is from your eyes. And we would see the amazingness of you. And you'd comfort and challenge us to respond to that in the way we think about ourselves and the way we live. We pray this, Lord, in your son's name. Amen. If you had to boil your life down to a sentence, what would you say? What defines you? What are you about? For most of us, we live for what we love, right? We live for the things that, that we love. Love has got to be one of the most powerful motivators in our life. Some of us love chocolate. Might not live for it, but sometimes I think it's not far off. 
Some of us for holidays or for fun or for pleasure or for comfort or for security or for hope or for enjoyment. We have a whole heap of things that we love that drive us. And at least to some extent, these things we love determine the direction of our lives, determine what we spend our time doing and thinking about. They, they describe the heart of what we are about. We live for what we love. As we come to Scripture, we see Scripture pointing us to the fact that God is the ultimate lovable one, that we should love God. I don't know if you've noticed this in yourselves the way I have, but so much of what I love isn't really about God. It's often about me, about my joy, about my pleasure, about my security, about my hope. Even sometimes when I think about God, it's about, wow, look at what he offers me, rather than looking at him and being amazed and awed. Well, it seems that the world that we live in seems about to be focusing on loving ourselves. The picture the Bible sets out for us is that life lived to its full, life that makes the most sense, that's the most fulfilling, is actually not when we love ourselves, but when we love God. 2,000 years ago, a Jewish rabbi walked up to a Galilean carpenter. Sounds like a joke, right? But it's not. And he said this in Mark chapter 12. Of all the commandments, which is the most important? Now, this carpenter would become known as God the Son, the creator and sustainer of all things. This was Jesus, this rabbi went up to, to ask this question of. And this is what Jesus says. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. When it comes to the question of life, of what's most important, of of how we should live and, and what we're about, Jesus claims our life must be unequivocally God centered, focused on Him, for Him. But my question is why? Sure, there are some things we think of, but why should we love God? Why is it all about Him? Isn't that a little arrogant, a little self-centered? Doesn't God call us to be humble and not proud? Why can God stand there and say, you should be loving me? That's what I want to spend a fair bit of time this morning thinking through. Why should we love God? I don't just want to tell us we should love God. I want us to see who He is and out of that be able to respond. So firstly, just listen to how amazing the God of the Bible is. We just read this, but I'm just going to pull out a a few key verses from Ephesians. They're on the screen. Just listen. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Verse 4, for he, he chose us in him before the creation of the world. Or verse 5, in love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. In him, verse 7, we have redemption through Jesus' blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Verse 9, and he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure 
Verse 13, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Paul, as he starts this letter to the church in Ephesus, lays out the amazingness of God. Do you see it? He's phenomenally generous, offering us far more than what we deserve, lavishing on us that we might have forgiveness and life. He's a God who who loves to bless, to make us happy. He's a God who accomplishes his plan without fail, and that plan is good. He's a God who always keeps his word, always keeps his promises, even when it costs him incredibly at the cross. He's a God who's patient, holding off his judgment on those well, of all of humanity who've turned their backs on him, he'd have every right to end us right now. That's what we ask for, isn't it? We say often, don't want you in my life. I kind of want to live my way at times. I just want to do this my way. I don't want you round. We're saying to the one who sustains us, get out. He'd have every right to say, okay, and I take my life with your life with me. <laughs> but he doesn't. He allows us to live, to breathe to see his amazingness so we might come and experience the forgiveness he's offered in Jesus. He's a phenomenally patient God, holding off his judgment so that more people can be saved. A God who offers forgiveness. Not the kind of half-hearted forgiveness that so often comes from me. (laughs) You know, that reluctant forgiveness, I guess I'll forgive you. I've got to move on in this relationship somehow. You know, you're like, whatever. Um, Not like that. It's a God who's kind of, he's lavish in his forgiveness. He's aggressive. He comes chasing after us. Even when we don't want to know about him, he's like, I want to, I'm my son. God the son is going to die so that you can be forgiven. And it's no cheap forgiveness either. It came at an incredible cost, didn't it? God the son dying on a cross. The blood of God the son spilt for you and me so we could be forgiven, so that God would remain just and make us, declare us right with God. If you haven't yet come to Jesus and realised how amazing he is and realised who he is and what he's offering you, I do want you to pause for a moment and just reflect. Even if you do trust in Jesus, if you have trust in what he's done for you, I want you to pause for a moment and reflect on the amazingness of this. God the Son died so that you and I can know God. This does two things for me. Firstly, it just amazes me that Jesus the one who the Bible claims all things were created by and for and through, the one who is in control of all things, who is so powerful that he spoke and creation came into existence. He could raise the dead, heal the blind, love the unlovable. That Jesus was willing to die for me. I just become complacent so often. I don't think of the amazingness. I don't... We don't see this love kind of anywhere else, really, but that someone so powerful would go to such lengths for someone like me and you, my neighbour. Jesus' love amazes me. But it also convicts me. As I look to him and see the cost that was required 
so that I could be declared right with God, so that my sins could be forgiven. As I see the, the amazing cost Jesus bore for me, God's anger for my rebellion poured out on him in my place. It reminds me that, well, I deserve God's anger. I get that kind of feeling. I don't know if you've ever had it when you get in trouble. You're in trouble at school. I remember it well. And you've got that kind of twisted stomach feeling. You're about to go before the principal. You know you're about to get in trouble. And you're like, you know you've done something wrong. I've been there. I was in the place of getting suspended for four days. It was, I knew I was about to get busted. Shooting an air rifle at a blackboard in class. But weren't people in the classroom at the time. We were doing a Gallipoli reenactment. I remember... <laughs> I remember standing there, though, outside the principal's office, and they're kind of having this meeting with all the kind of bigwigs, knowing, oh, I'm, I'm done. I did this. So did the three other guys standing next to me. And that feeling of, man, I've done something so wrong. But here, when I look at the cross, and I see not just that I do something wrong, but it costs the creator of the universe his life, how immense is my need? How wrong is my rebellion against the God who controls all things? And then it makes me so, so joyful that freely he's offered his forgiveness to me and said, come to me. I love you. I've died for you. Trust in my son. It's finished. There is no penalty. There's no rap to face. For all those times you've turned your back on God, I've, I've, I've covered it. And there I stand amazed at the God who's loved me and his son. Jesus He's amazing, isn't he? I hope you can see that. Not just hear it, but see why he's such a focus for us. My question is, though, why would he do it? Why would he go to such extreme and costly lengths for me? Well, Paul tells us in this letter three times, he talks about... What God does, in verse 6, verse 12, and verse 14, they're on the screen. He does it for the praise of His glorious grace, for the praise of His glory, for the praise of His glory. We exist so that God looks good. Jesus loved us immensely so that He looks good, so that God the Father looks good, so that God the Spirit looks good. All of it, all of us, his, salva- his sa- salvation act, what he's done for us is to praise God, is to make God look good. What he's saying is it's not about you or me. It's not about us. Yes, he loved us immensely and did it because he cares for us, but ultimately to bring him glory. But before the creation of the world, God had you in mind. He knew every single one of us. He knew his plans for us. He knew that Jesus would come and die for us. But he had it in mind so that it would bring him glory. The world does not exist, first and foremost, for you and me, but for God. So that's why God made the world. Last week, as we saw Revelation 4 and the, and the people in the, in the throne room of God, the elders all cir- circled around worshipping God for He created all things. By your will they exist and have their being. The world is pointing to God. 
Psalm 19.1, it's on the screen here. The heavens, what do they do? Declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. The reason God created the universe, as vast as it is, wasn't just for our viewing pleasure, wasn't for us to go, oh, that's pretty cool. Before it was about you, it was about him. It's his bling. It's like, do you see this? Do you see how great I am? It makes God look good. And doesn't it? (laughs) Not only is the universe created for God's glory, but humanity is created for God's glory. That's what Paul says in this part of Ephesians. Uh, In verse 11, chapter 1, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Why did he do it? For the praise of his glory. Now here Paul's talking about Jews in particular. Uh, They were the first to get who Jesus was. That's who the news of the true Messiah, the promised king went to first. They were historically God's chosen people. They weren't a nation that was better than those around them. In fact, they were smaller, tiny, insignificant to those around them. God chose them not because of them or of any merit they had as a nation. He chose them to say, have you seen how good I am? Have you seen what I can do? Listen to this. It's in Isaiah 48. For my own name's sake, I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you so as not to cut you off. See, I have refined you, though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. It's strong, isn't it? Do you see how incredibly God-focused God is? That's what we exist for. It's what everything exists for. Israel was saved for his glory, for his honour, for his reputation. And he's saying to Israel on this point, when you mess it up, you bring down my name. Before it's about their good, it's about God's glory. Both are true. God's glory doesn't mean that it's bad for us. It's like the two sides of the one coin. No, no, no. But before it's about my good, it's about God's glory. The next verse for Paul, he then goes on in Ephesians 1.13 and talks about those who weren't Jews. And you also, he says, verse 13, were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Why? To the praise of his glory. Humanity exists for the praise of God's glory. That's our purpose. That's what we're about. That's why we're here, is to point to God. But my problem is I'm, <laughs> I'm more interested in kind of mucking around with life in the shadows rather than the God who's made all things. I get so captivated with myself and with, with my pleasures that I, I kind of turn my back on the light sometimes, don't you? And you find yourself thinking about the things that are here and now because they're so vivid, they're so real and the things of God and who he is and what he's done kind of fade away and it kind of, it just becomes, what does this mean? We turn our backs on the light and we spend our time reducing in, sorry, rejoicing 
in our brawn or beauty or brains or some part of who we are. And we shortchange ourselves. We miss, kind of like living, always looking down and missing the stars. We miss what we're here for. We miss the amazingness of life glorifying God. See, I've used this illustration before, but we need to learn from the moon. Right? The moon hasn't got any light of its own. There's nothing special about the moon. It just kind of sits there and goes around the earth. But man, on, on, on a night where there's a full moon, have you seen how bright it is? How, how glowing it is in the sky? It will light up the ground. Why? Not because of anything about itself, but because it reflects the light of the sun. The sun lights up the moon and kind of makes the, the, the world and all that we see just a reflection of God's amazing light. That's what we're to be like. That's how God made us, to reflect the light of God to the world around us, to be shining and being saying, have you seen the sun? Have you seen God? Have you seen Jesus? But instead of being the moon, we end up being like black holes sometimes, kind of sucking up the light. The reason we were created was to make God look good. Now, it still sort of sounds arrogant to me. <laughs> I still kind of go, you know, it sounds a bit like Arnie. Like, have you heard Arnold Schwarzenegger's quote about what he likes for sport, why he chose bodybuilding over all the others? In his biography, he says this. Um, he talks about why he hates team sports. hates them. He's like, I refuse to do them. This is why. He says, the problem with team sports is you have to share the glory. <laughs> it's right, isn't it? Bodybuilding, all the glory goes to me. It's kind of like what God's life, though, isn't it? It's, it sounds like it. But here's something that we often misunderstand. We think that because God is glorified, it somehow diminishes us or isn't for our good, like I said earlier. But God's glory is for our good. How is he most glorified? In the death of his son for us in reconciling us back to God and giving us all those things that Paul talks about in Ephesians 1. Man, if he's glorified that way, I'm in. I love this. God's glory and my good go hand in hand, the two sides of, of, of the one coin. And it's good that God is glorified. It's good that God is always held up as the ultimate one because our salvation is dependent on him and how good he is, on him keeping his word, on him keeping his honour of him keeping his name, that I am the God who will save my people. They trust in my son, and that will happen. I'm glad God is jealous for his name, because it means my good. Now, it got me thinking, why, why do I think it is arrogant? I think it's because I, I sometimes think God is like me. No, I'm not perfect. I'm not, I've got so many flaws. So many times I'm frustrated with myself. And, you know, but God is not like that. But I think if I was about the world's about me, it's just not, Rowan. You're dreaming. You're deluded. Like, you, you know, what planet are you living on that you think you're God? I sometimes act that way. I think it would be like saying to the sun, going up to the sun and going, son, I just think you're incredibly arrogant. I think the sun is incredibly arrogant that all the planets need to go around you. Like, who do you think you are, son, 
that you think the planets need to, need to go around that way. What an arrogant sun we have. I think for just one year, the sun should go around the earth. Just share it out. You know, see, see what happens. And I think that's what we should do. But the reason why everything goes around the sun is because it's the biggest. It's the greatest. It has the, the most gravitational pull. It just is that way. It's physics. It's reality. It's, it, it, there can be no other option. It's the sun. Well, so it is with God. He is the greatest. He is. There is no flaw in him. He's the creator. He sustains everything. There's no one else like him. He's, it's not arrogant to say it's all about me. It is all about him. It's just truth. It's just reality. <laughs> we need to come to God and realize that both our good and his glory are the same thing. And he is the greatest. He has the greatest worship pull of anything on the planet. He's, he's the greatest force of bringing people in to say, have you seen me? Do you see what I do? Life needs to be centered on him. See, when you get who God is and you see what he's done at the cross, you see God the Son exchange his life for yours. That's when you realize what life's about. I can only pretend down here on earth while I shut my eyes to that reality. Pretend like I've got life in control. Like I'm kind of, you know, I've got things sorted. Like I can maintain my own life or run it. I can't. But when you see what God has done, when we lift the veil and actually look to him, well, that's what I want in. I can't run my life like he can. I can't do anything that he can do. I want to glorify him. I want him to be glorified in me. Paul, when he looks to Jesus, when he <clears throat> sees what's happened on the cross, where he sees God the Son dying, when he recognizes that the creator of the universe is being nailed to a plank of wood, only because the person being nailed sustains the heartbeat of the one nailing the hammers into his arms. When Paul recognizes that the one who is on that cross is the one who sustains everything and is doing it willingly for us and for God's glory, he says, life changes. Life changes dramatically. Have a listen to him in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 15. For Christ's love compels us. Since we've reached this conclusion, if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and raised. Christ's love compels us. That's the right response, the logical response, the only response when you actually recognize who he is and what he's done. To realize it's not about me, it's not about us. The only arrogance on display is mine when I think the sun should revolve around me. <laughs> now, the right response to the love of God is to live for Him. It's to live for Him. It's to love Him. So, how, how should we love God? What does that look like? How do we, you know, given who He is and the amazingness of the response He requires from us, how do you, how do you love God? I think it's kind of like the way you love anyone, really. It's what love is. I think about hanging out with my kids and my family. I, I love my kids most of the time. 
Like they're great. I love hanging out with them and, and playing with them. And I love them, kind of seeing them do fun stuff. And like just this morning, I walked downstairs and like Ethan's sitting there under a blanket with it kind of over his head, just kind of watching, uh, watching a cartoon or something this morning. And it's like, how cool is that? I don't know. I just, they're great. You probably don't think that, but I do because they're my kids and I love them. I enjoy them. I, I enjoy talking about what they do. If Sarah's missed something, I want to I talk about them when, when she gets home. I want to want to revel in them. I, I enjoy who they are. You praise them. You, you want them to be adore, adored and, and recognized. If you love someone, you, you want to please them. When you truly love someone, you want them to have pleasure. You want them to enjoy life. I deeply desire for my kids to enjoy life, to enjoy our family, to know who God is. I want the best for them. When you love someone, you, you revel in them. You begin to love what they love. And hate what they hate. I've never been a huge lover of cats. Sorry to all the cat lovers there. But when I married Sarah, um, I became an even stronger hater of cats. Uh, because Sarah's allergic to them. Not just kind of like, I don't like them, can they stay away? She kind of, um, her throat kind of closes over a bit and she starts coughing and her eyelids become flotation devices. And, you know, it's just kind of everything swells up. And it's, not, it's not nice. Um, and so I too hate cats. Because I hate what they do to my wife. I'm like, get away. I don't want cats around Sarah. Because I love her. And so my love for her, my likes about become more and more what she's like. It's true, isn't it? Who or what you love shapes your values, shapes how you live. If you love cats, that's great. Just love them at your place. That's my kind of take home message from today. Jesus says the most important thing in life the thing that controls your eternity is this. Whether or not you love God the Son. Whether or not you trust who He is and put your life in His hands. Whether you love God as you should. Love the Lord your God, says Jesus to the rabbi, with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. What does love for God look like? Everything. Everything given to Him. With all our heart and soul and mind or strength. This is not some way that kind of God is dividing up people and saying, well, this part of your life, it's only that part, like the mind part and the heart part uh, and, and your soul part and your strength part. But with all your weaknesses, you don't need to worry about it. And uh, your knees, you don't need to worry about serving God. He's not kind of dividing us up and saying, oh, it's this area and then that area and that area. He's saying everything. There is not one centimeter of your body, of your mind, of your life, of your resources, of your time that should not and is not rightly focused on God and on loving Him. You can't live as a Christian on Sundays and go out and get drunk with your mates on Monday night. You can't kind of say, I want to trust God for my life and put it in Jesus' hands and see my security and my hope in Him and then go out and steal from the tax man. You can't can't live that way. How can you be serving the God of the universe when you're taking your security and comfort and hope in your own hands? I remember the moment for me when I realised, was I serious about following Jesus? It was just after... I shot that air rifle at a blackboard. I definitely had trusted in Jesus before. 
Uh, I can remember at one point um, being quite sick and realizing that if I died, uh, um, I, was, I was about to have brain surgery, so if, if I died on that table, uh, that uh, I trusted in Jesus, it was about a year earlier, that he'd save me. But then a year later, here I was at school, I was at home, um, after shooting this air rifle to blackboard, I was suspended from school, and my year coordinator rang me and said, oh, is your mum there? I'm like, no. And she's like, oh, why are you at home? I'm like, why do you think? I got suspended for shooting an air rifle to blackboard. Like, I was phenomenally rude to her. And she's like, oh, that's, why did you do that? I'm like, what are, what are these questions? So I kind of treated her as I would have treated anyone at school. I didn't really care what people thought of me. I was kind of quite reasonably rude at that point. Um, and so I was kind of quite abrupt to her. At the end of the conversation, she goes, oh, can you just tell your mum these are the songs for church on Sunday? So when I realized that it wasn't my year coordinator, it was the pastor's wife. I just misheard her name. And I'm like, oh. And it hit me. Was I serious about following Jesus with all my life? Why was there an area that I'd compartmentalized off called school that I didn't care about, but home and church I did? I definitely trusted Jesus without a shadow of a doubt. Why was I doing that? If I was serious about putting Jesus first, he had to be Lord of all of it, every single square inch of it. That's what he requires. He's like the sun. That's the gravitational pull that he has. So to do anything other than that is phenomenally arrogant. Who did I think I was? And when Jesus tells this Jewish rabbi how to respond to God, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul and all your strength, it's a way of saying everything you are. God wants you to love him with everything, to be your passion, to be the thing that makes you, to be about what you're about. He wants to be our son, the one whom everything revolves around. He wants us to be like the moon and reflect his glory, not try and light little fires on our own and say, look, I'm as bright as the sun with my little light. It's pathetic, but I do it. We are here to reflect his glory. That's why we exist. Paul says in this, in this bit we read earlier in 2 Corinthians 5, we are no longer to live for ourselves but for Jesus. We're to give up our passions, our dreams and our lives even, everything. Because we get the magnitude of who Jesus is, the depth of his love. We see how much better, how incomparably greater it is living for God than for ourselves. As we do that in, in the way we work, in the way we treat our friends, in the way we, we think about what matters most, he's saying, don't just you know, give up on everything in life and just sit there like some monk on a pole, like a guy did for three years. Just sat there, and went, I'm, I'm just going to contemplate God. No, no, no. Live in your life. Do the things, the abilities, the skills, the gifts God's given you. Take those and use them for his glory. Live for him. Boot out that part of you that says, oh, I want to be proud of myself in this and think, how can I make much of God's name? It's not a law that, that's given. It's something here that, what does Paul say? We're compelled to do by the love of Christ. It's not like, oh, got to serve God again. It's like, have you seen him? Have you seen me? I'm with serving him, not me. Paul's compelled because he sees Jesus clearly. What's God's heart for us? 
to see Jesus clearly, to, to, to love him, to center our lives around him. When I see who he is, it's, it's, it's no chore. It's a no-brainer. I'm in. Christ's love compels me. Every decision, every choice, every day, every week that goes past, every relationship you encounter is an opportunity to think, am I going to put Jesus first? Am I going to put a smile on the face of God? Our life really is the altar on which the God of the universe is glorified. Not because we've got it all sorted out, but because we rely on the one who has. Because we trust in what Jesus has done. We call that magnifying God. Making his name great. It's a funny word, magnification. We kind of use it in church for one area that we look at. Really, there's two types of magnification in the world. There might be more. I'm just going to talk about two. One is the type of magnifying that you get something really, really little and you stick it under like an electron kind of microscope thing and it makes something really, really tiny look huge and you can kind of see into it. That's layman's terms. Ask someone who knows far more than me about that later. That's something making something tiny bigger. That's not the type of magnification we're talking about. God isn't tiny. The other type of magnification is the one you get in a telescope that brings huge planets and solar systems closer. Planets that look so small to our eyes, yet they bring them close to see how large and glorious and wonderful they are. That's what we're called to be doing. The magnification that's like a telescope, bringing God closer. We can't make God bigger. (laughs) He's the creator and sustainer of everything. But we can show him to the world around us by the way we live, by what we say, what we do. That's that type of magnification we want to be on about. We exist to make him look like he is. Amazing. So what does that mean for us as a church as we think through what's God's heart for us? How do we do this? You know, what is God's plan for us to love him? How do we do this as a church? Well, we want to be a church that shows the amazingness of God. We're not going to be a church that encourages kind of nominalism or balance. You know, a bit of religion is a good thing. You mix it in with your life. You do a bit of religion here, that helps you there. You do a bit of stuff over here. And it's just kind of one of the, the optional extras. That, that's, that's not what God's about. I don't want to be a balanced person. I don't want us to be a balanced church. Christ's love compels us to live radical and unbalanced lives. No longer for me, but as, as a Christian who gives my life completely and utterly for God, everything is for him. I want to use my money to show that God, not my possessions are my treasure. I want to use my life to prove Jesus is more precious than life itself. Jesus is more precious than life itself. That's how I want to live. That's how I want us as a church to live. That's how God wants everyone to live. What matters most? Him. At the end of 2011, there was a a moment in New Zealand history in a stadium just 800 metres from here where 20 men were on a rugby pitch. They played their socks off throughout a World Cup. They played rugby like they never have before. And at the end of the game, when that Rugby World Cup was presented to Richie McCaw, and they cried out in in the glory of, of, this is, we've won. At that moment, New Zealand was crowned the world champions of rugby. At that moment, they played their hearts out and they gave glory to New Zealand. New Zealand. 
I bet that was a moment for you to be proud to be a Kiwi. This is my team. These are my representatives. They are the world champions and I'm with them. Well, I don't know about you, but I want to do for God what the All Blacks did for New Zealand. I want God to use all that I am to see his name lifted high, to see all creation worship him, to see this city come to know the love of Jesus. Friends, the love of Christ compels us, compels us to live radically unbalanced lives where God is the centre, where Jesus is magnified, And with all the energy I have, with all the resources I have, with all that I am, to put him first. Ah, the freedom to love Jesus like that. And that's ours. Let's pray that we would take this and make much of Jesus. Father God, we want to thank you so much for the amazingness of who you are. The complete difference of you are so different from us. You are so perfect and, and loving. Lord, we ask that we might live our lives in a way that brings you glory, that you'd use us, you'd use all of us to point to you. Lord, for those of us here who are still trying to work out um, who you are and, and whether you're worth following, please, please show yourself to us as well as to them. Keep reminding us of the amazingness of that character of yours, the love of yours. Take us and use us to hold your name high that we might magnify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to invite Lyndon up the front briefly um, just to have a quick interview with him because his job at Auckland AV is called the Magnification Pastor. You're like, what is that? Well, now you, now you know, like, Lyndon's job is to, well, what is your job? Yeah, um, I guess it's kind of, yeah, it is a weird term, not many people, like, what do you do, you know, in the church, I'm a magnification driver. Um, it is kind of odd. So, I guess what I do is, is day to day, I'm thinking through, as a church, how can we enjoy God as God? How can we uh, be glorifying, exalting his name in all the areas and all the things that we're doing, making sure that we uh, are praising him and pushing his name higher? Um, and that, I, I guess, is what we've been hearing, that people are, are seeing how awesome he is. What do you find just hard in that job? Like, you know, sounds like a cool job, just get to point to Jesus all the time. What do you personally find hard about it? Or Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I think for me, uh, at the moment, with leading most weeks, um, it can be quite draining and quite tiring. Um, but it's also really easy to just turn up on a Sunday and kind of sing some songs and, and know, oh, the words are true, but um, we just kind of go through the motions. And for me, I have to continually sort of ask the question, why am I actually praising God? Why am I doing this? So uh, making sure that I'm spending time with God throughout the week, uh, that I do actually believe the words we're singing. And I think most importantly, actually believing that Jesus is worthy of being praised. Um, Yeah, so so just making sure that um, I I sort of don't go through the motions, that um, that I myself am enjoying God as God. Um, You've been coming along to EV Generate, which is our kind of 
uh, thing we put on once a month to help people uh, be trained and equipped to think a little deeper about who God is and what he's doing to train up leaders across church. Uh, we've just finished the book called Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper. Um, shameless plug. Uh, if you'd like that, you can write it on your Connect card and I can send you this week a free copy um, digitally because it's free online. Or you can just search it and go, oh, get it for free on the internet. Um, but how did you find that book? What was the one, what was one thing that kind of hit you out of that book that you were like, yes? Yeah, um, it, it was really, really good. There was an example that John Piper used um, where he said, he was in front of his church and he, he said a, a story, he said There's, there were two women sort of in their 80s and they'd been doing full-time Christian ministry uh, in I think like a third world country for years, uh, serving uh, Jesus relentlessly. And then one day their car went over a cliff, uh, it was actually, yeah, it was kind of a couple of days after, and, um, and they died. And so he's at his church and he's talking about this and he goes, is this a tragedy? And he says, no, no it's not. He says, I'll tell you what's a tragedy. He, he talks about an article that he read of uh, a couple, I can't remember what their names are, in their 50s. And this article talked about how they'd taken early retirement uh, and they spent their days living in Florida playing baseball, uh, sailing on their yacht and collecting seashells. And um, he said, that is, a, that is a tragedy. When when we go when they go before the creator of the universe and what did you do with your life? And they go, here's my shell collection. Um and I guess for me, that was really countercultural. Um, you know, all these things were kind of leading up to, to retirement and, and kind of relaxing, but um, seeing two ladies who were completely sold out for the gospel, that saw how awesome Jesus was and wanted people to know him uh, in, in their 80s, and they died and they got to be with their God. And so I was really challenged on um, what, am, what is my life going to be about? What's important? Um, and that if I actually believe that Jesus who is who he says he is, um, then I want to spend my life actually making him look awesome, um, telling people about him. Um, your job under God with us as a staff team is to help us as a church magnify God. How can we help you help us magnify God? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, being up the front, it is so encouraging. Uh, to see some of us just praising God on a Sunday through song, um, with hearts overflowing of love towards Him. Um, and so for me, seeing that is hugely encouraging. So I want to encourage you to continue to do that, to prepare for Sundays, to be um, coming ready to encourage one another, because it's not just encouraging for me, um, but for everyone else. Um, and that, that's why we sing together on a Sunday, uh, is to praise together as God's family, to a God who is awesome to encourage one another. And so, um, yeah, that, 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 that's really encouraging for me. Why don't we pray together as a church, thanking God for Lyndon and his service of us, um, and then you keep doing that for him. Let's pray. Father God, thanks so much for Lyndon, uh, for the great joy he is to us as a church, leading us out the front in, in singing and pointing to your praise and what you've done for us, but also throughout the week and helping us just as, a, as a staff team and as a church to think of how amazing God is. We ask, Lord, that um, as he leads Abby, you would keep um, them as a family serving you. You keep their eyes fixed on the amazingness of your son and that um, they would just grow more and more in their love and knowledge of you so that they might keep pointing us to how amazing Jesus is. So, Lord, we thank you for the great gift of Lyndon that he is to us and we pray, Lord, that uh, you would sustain him uh, throughout this time in, in his service of us here. 
We pray this in your great and glorious name.